0: All right. Well, like I said earlier, this passage, 1 Samuel 17, is one of my is my absolute favorite passage in the entire Bible. And I'm not alone. Uh, perhaps no other passage in the Bible has made its way into the collective consciousness of our consciousness of our culture as this one. Routinely, we hear of something being described as a David and Goliath type situation. Just several weeks ago, when then non-ranked, nobody, little old Iowa State was about to defeat then number two Oklahoma, one of the announcers predictably said, it's a classic David and Goliath upset. It happens all the time. Everyone likes this story. Boys want to be David. Girls want to be with him. Guys like the thought of being David, and girls are drawn to David for the same reason they're drawn to rock stars and quarterbacks. He's a hero. Everybody likes the story. But because it's so well known, it's probably poorly understood. In fact, If you do a YouTube search or a Google search for sermons on 1 Samuel 17 or sermons on David and Goliath, the bulk of the sermons you're going to discover are sermons about how to overcome the giants in your life. The bulk of the sermons are going to have you in the place of David. David where you're the little old person who's up against the wall, you're outnumbered, outgunned, outclassed, out whatever, and if you just reach in hard enough and believe hard enough, you too can take down the Goliath in your life. I just summarized most sermons on this passage. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the reality that this passage is trying to convey is you are not David. David you need David. In fact, if there's any single bottom line truth that this passage is teaching us, it is that only the faithfulness of God's anointed one can save you. Only the faithfulness of God's anointed one can save you. Now, it's true that according to Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10, everything that took place in the Old Testament was written down and delivered to us for our instruction and to be an example to us. And so unquestionably, there are some great principles for life and and, and some great lessons to be drawn from this passage. And in coming weeks, we'll look at that. But we miss the boat if we start there. You see, David, who's the principal human actor in this passage, goes on to write a number of the Psalms in our our scriptures. And the Psalms routinely reflect upon what God has done specifically through the Exodus and through redemption. The idea being that our human response is just that, a response. It comes after or in light of what God has done for us. And so we read the Bible with the cart before the horse, if we start with what am I supposed to do before we first look at what God has done for us. The indicative of what God has done is what informs and fuels the imperative of our human response. Okay? So this passage is not principally about what am I supposed to do to overcome the giants in my life. The passage is principally about what has God done to save you from the giant in your life. So, what is this passage about? Well, in its immediate context, this passage is highlighting the difference between Saul and David. When this book was written, when 1 Samuel was written, uh, we assume it was written by Samuel. Nowhere does it say that Samuel the prophet wrote it. That's just the tradition we've received. So it's possible someone else did. But if it's true that Samuel wrote the book, he was trying to legitimize in the eyes of the Jewish people that David was the true king. You may not recall, but several years after this incident in 1 Samuel 17, after Saul has died in battle, and David is publicly declared to be king, there's a civil war. There's a several-year-long civil war. I think it's seven years. See, not everyone in Israel thought that David should be the true king. Saul's the king. The kingdom should naturally go to his son Jonathan. So there was a civil war. And so in this passage, in its immediate historical context, the legitimacy, the superiority of the Davidic kingdom is being asserted over against that of Saul, okay? But we're not living in a divided Israel. So that's not our primary concern. What does remain the enduring principle is that it's only the faithfulness of God's anointed one that can save you. And you might say, well, Ben, that's the bottom line of much of the Old Testament. Just about every story in the Old Testament boils down to only the faithfulness of God's anointed one can save you. Exactly. We need that truth pounded in our head over and over and over. Just look at Israel's history to this point. They come out of Egypt. And within, within weeks of coming out of Egypt, they're missing Egypt. Egypt. They rebel time and time and time again until finally the generation that left Egypt is is, is sentenced to die in the desert. They're not going to inherit the promised land, and it's their children that will. So those children then come into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They take it over. They were faithful. Their children, the grandchildren of the people who left Egypt, are as well faithful. But then starting with the third generation, They fall into apostasy, and that's the whole story of the book of Judges, the apostasy of the people of Israel, how they want to be like the cultures that surround them. They do not want to live the life that God has given them. They do not want to live in accordance with the precepts that God has given him, and they certainly don't want to submit themselves to the governance and lordship of God. So they sin. God punishes them with an enemy oppressor, they cry out, God raises up a deliverer in the form of a judge. Times are good, then they rebel again, and the cycle repeats, 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 repeats. So finally then, at the end of the period of the judges, which is right where 1 Samuel picks up, Samuel the prophet is getting old. And the people love his leadership, but Samuel, you're not going to live forever, so we want a king like the nations. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people, according to God, the people reject God as their king because they want a king in the manner of the kings of the nations. And so that's exactly what God gives them. Everyone knows that Saul was a bad king, but people oftentimes miss they forget the fact that Saul was personally selected by God. What God was doing to and for his people with the selection of Saul was giving them exactly what they wanted. A king who was like the kings of the nations. And so when Saul is introduced, the emphasis is on his appearance. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's handsome. He's rich. He's well-liked. What a guy. Saul is exactly like Gaston from Disney's Beauty and the Beast. No one fights like Gaston, no one, you know? But like Gaston, what does he turn out to be? A creep. Twice on two key occasions, he reveals that his concern is not the lordship of God, it's maintaining appearances in the eyes of men. And so the Lord says, the, after the first time, I would have made you a dynasty. But now your kingdom's going to die with you. After the second occasion, it's like, all right, I've rejected you as king, and I'm giving it to another. That's in chapter 15. In chapter 16, then, an unknown character from the pages of Scripture is singled out by God. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and meets these impressive sons of Jesse. And Samuel thinks, surely I'm looking at the future anointed one right here. No, no. You, you, you people look at the flesh. You're impressed by size and personality. I look at the heart. And so he goes, and eventually he meets the youngest of the seven who's not even introduced at the time. And he anoints David. And then David becomes a servant of Saul but he's not really in the public eye. He's basically kept around because he's a good instrumentalist. He's a good harp player and that pleases Saul because Saul is tormented by an oppressing spirit from the Lord sent to inflict him. And David is able to play good music and that pleases this guy so he's kept around. Now, Up to this point then or at this point in the story of 1 Samuel 17, it's pretty much business as usual. The cycle continues. The enemies of God come and afflict the people of God who cry out for a deliverer and God raises one up. But Saul has demonstrated time and time again that he is the picture of the whole problem. They want life on their own terms. And so that's the first big lesson of the passage. Autonomy ultimately fails. If you try to live life on your terms, you will eventually fail. Remember the key draw, the key appeal of Saul was that he was bigger and stronger than every other person in Israel. If you're trying to rely on your looks there's someone better looking. If you're trying to rely on your wits, there's a wittier person. If you're trying to rely on your smarts, there's a smarter person. If you're trying to rely on your wealth, there's a richer person. If you're trying to rely on your size and your strength, there's always someone bigger. And that's exactly what Goliath represents. His size and the way he's described. No no enemy of God in the Bible is described with such care and detail as is Goliath. No enemy of God is quoted with as many words as is Goliath. He's unique because he represents the unmovable wall that your presumptions will run into if you're trying to live life on your own terms. And so Goliath, comes out from the people of the Philistines And he's nine and a half feet tall you may think that's ridiculous well in 1950 the Guinness Book of Record, World Records recorded the tallest person as being a mere seven inches shorter than that currently the tallest person in the world is nine inches shorter than that so it's not impossible anyway he's nine and a half feet tall And he's covered with armor. Now, the people of Israel at this point, because of their continual cycle of oppression and rebellion, they were poor. The Bible records that at this time, the only two people in Israel who actually had actual military weapons and armor were Saul and Jonathan. Everyone else, this whole Israelite army, is armed basically with farming tools. Okay, They are outmatched. And here comes Goliath, like a human tank. Covered in armor. His chest plate weighs 126 pounds. I have worn military-grade body armor that weighed about 60 pounds, and I can tell you it's hard to move. 120 pounds. He's got weights on his, on his shins. I mean, I imagine this dude, he's got like a bear claw across his face. He's been slashed by a lion or something. And he's just gnarly. I imagine him with some blood-stained, smattered beard or something. I mean, he's like—I imagine him being like in his mid-thirties. He's—he's—he's like one of those ranchers out west who's—he's—he's he's hard from having thrown fifty-pound bales of hay all day for for thirty years. Okay, he's hard, and he comes out there. You people are wimps. When he says, "Give me a man," I hope you realize he's insulting all of them. You people, pff, come out and face me! <laughs> and they're just in. They're back there shaking at the knees. How about that? Even Saul, the one in whom they placed all their hope. You see, autonomy ultimately fails. Autonomy will get you up against a wall and you will break. But then we're introduced in verse 12 to David. David is introduced as someone who is consummately faithful. You see, the verse 12 and 13 underscores that David's brothers were personally following Saul. When it says they followed Saul, the word is actually twice in Hebrew. It's, it's following, they followed Saul. The point is that they weren't just doing their duty. No, they were believers in Saul. He's our hope. They had entrusted themselves and their well-being and their happiness to Saul. So they've given themselves to Saul. And that's why it's on David, the youngest, to be the dutiful one to go back and forth from the camp to his home. He's the one making that dangerous journey over and over again to make sure that his father's property is taken care of. He's the one when his father says, go and, and, and check on your brothers. And his dad is astute. He knows how to work with people in command. Here, he gives a gift to their commander. You know, you've got to win, curry some favor, right? Maybe that will get them out of guard duty or something. And when David goes, the text is careful to point out that he didn't just leave the sheep, he left them in the care of someone. When he gets to the camp, the text points out that he gave all the food to the, to the logistician. He's faithful. He's careful. He's meticulous. And then he hears. He hears the words of this Philistine. And unlike everyone else there, he doesn't see a nine foot tall tank. He sees a blasphemous heathen that needs to be put down like a rabid dog. He's disgusted. He's incensed because he understands that the glory and the honor of God is what is at stake. And so he goes and he talks to Saul. And there, right there, you see that Saul and the Philistine are not too different. The Philistine knew exactly what he was doing. When he came out in his armor, he knew that it was a shock and awe thing, that psychologically he was melting his opponents. But Saul, too, operated out of the perspective that appearances are what mattered. That's why he tries to outfit him in his armor, at least look like a warrior. But David hadn't tested that stuff. Notice that that's what it says. You've got to get out of your mind this idea that David was like eight years old. Okay. Note that it says that he that, that when he would go out against bears and lions, that if they would rise up against him, he would grab them by the beard. Okay, this is not Samson reincarnated. He's not an eight-year-old kid killing bears and lions with his bare hands. Okay? Verse 6, chapter 16 introduces him as a man of war, full of valor. So he's in his mid teens. The point here is that however talented David may be. Saul, a pragmatist, is looking at him as someone who's basically green to combat. You're going out against their champion who's he's been killing people for sport all his life. David, you're outmatched. It's hopeless. But if you're going to go, at least look the part. Now you see some of Saul's folly right there. Realistically, put yourself in the position of a ruler. Are you going to entrust your people to the to the to the to someone who's never been in combat, to someone so green. But Saul does because that's just underscoring his folly. He's foolish. And David knows that he's going to go out there with the tools he knows how to use because he wants to demonstrate that he's not trusting in the wisdom or the prudence of men. He's trusting in the sovereignty of God. So he goes out and he engages the Philistine. And what happens there is pretty awesome. I love the interchange. We're tempted to think that it's just a battle of two people. But actually, uh, in verse 45, you see that this is very clearly a spiritual battle. When the Philistine sees that David is coming out, he looks at this kid and, and the Bible makes careful note of how handsome and how fresh looking David is. And that disgusts Goliath. Little, You people send out a pretty boy? I'm going to tear you in pieces, kid. He's disgusted. And David's not at all intimidated by the man or his armor or his weaponry. All he sees is someone that needs to be put down because they need to see that God is mightier than this thing. And so Goliath curses him by his God. Now, as soon as Goliath invokes the name of his gods, he's thereby invoking their presence and power. He's acting as their representative now, not just the representative of the people of Israel. And then David responds, I'm going to cut off your head and kill all your friends. And he calls on the name of the Lord. So now he's not just acting as the representative of the people. He's acting as God's representative. So what you have in that valley floor is the representative of God fighting the representatives of the idols. Or you may as well say the representatives of Satan. And on the hillsides surrounding, you got the people of Philistine and the people of Israel, and they're witness to this battle between God and Satan. And the battle, man, it's not even worth the price of admission. I often used to think that the battle between David and Goliath was this epic thing. You know, think, think of some epic score from a movie, you know, oh, like, like maybe from Lord of the Rings or something. You know, it's in slow motion. Oh. Nope. Goliath is this big lumbering thing. He comes up and he moves and he approaches. And David, quick as a whistle. Comes, moves forward, he shortens the distance in half, thereby offsetting any trajectory he might be thinking about, throwing that javelin, reaches into his pouch, whips that sling, and smashes it into his forehead, and it's over. Anticlimactic in one sense. But that's what when, happens when God rouses himself to act. It is over quick. Satan can't compete. And it hearkens back. chapter 5 of 1 Samuel the people of Israel had taken the ark of God and treated it like it was this magical thing that as long as it was here we're safe and God's like man I am not your tool so he lets the ark get captured by the Philistines the Philistines take the ark into their temple and y'all remember what happens the idols fall on their face before the ark of the Lord so now here you have the representative of those gods on his face before the representative of the Lord. And people are confused. It says he kills Goliath. And it emphasizes he had no sword. But then, it, then the very next words are he runs up, pulls out the sword, and kills him. Well, did he twice kill him? What happened? What I believe happened is this. He kills him with the stone. Okay, uh, in the British Museum, if you ever get to go, they have an exhibit of of ancient Near Eastern sling stones. This was a legit weapon of war. This wasn't a kid's toy. And those stones they used were about the size of a tennis ball. So this is a pretty big thing, smashing into someone's head at several hundred feet per second. Okay, he's dead. But from the vantage point of the witnesses who are on a hillside overlooking all they see is him fall down is he dead is he just unconscious what happened they don't know but it's pretty clear what happened when you see someone's head roll off their shoulders right so he cuts off Goliath's head and now they know he's dead and they turn tail and run because anyone who can take out this guy is going to take out me And so they flee, and they head west towards their coastal cities, and the Israelites pursue. Now, this note is pretty impressive, because it shows that the faithfulness of the Lord's anointed David was forward-looking. It says he takes the skull, the head, to Jerusalem. Does that mean he keeps it for years? Because it's actually like 20, 25 years before he ever goes to Jerusalem to make it his capital. Did he really hold on to it for 25 years? Nope. You want to know what I think he did? I think he knew exactly that Jerusalem was going to be his seat of government. I think he went there because at this time Jerusalem was a pagan, heathen city. And the first thing David does when he becomes king is he assaults and takes Jerusalem. I believe what he did is he takes Goliath's skull as a warning, and I bet he stuck it on a pole right outside the gate. As a warning, this is what's coming. Because Jerusalem will be mine. Because he understood that that was where God wanted to establish his name. So it was forward looking. I'm operating in faith that God is going to deliver all of our enemies out of this area. And this beautiful place is going to be where God's name is made known to the world. And so I'm letting them have notice that I'm going to take them out. Now, Saul, on the other hand, is just naturalistically minded. He sees David go out and he asks, whose son is this man? And this causes scholars some consternation because according to chapter 16, he's been serving David, or David's been serving him for quite some time. And so the, the mindset is, how come he acts in chapter 17 as if he doesn't know him? Well, my response to that is, obviously, you haven't worked for some of the self-absorbed bosses that I've worked for. All Up to this point, all David has been to Saul is someone who plays the harp and makes him happy. He's a king. He's, you know, you're just some little, it's not worth my time. But now, all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, I've been missing some quality talent here. Who, who are you? I thought you were just some pretty boy harp player, and you're out there slaying people. My goodness. That's what he's asking. He's kind of perked up. Oh, All he cares about is that he's been missing out on using this guy to win his wars. He's not looking, my goodness, look at what God has just done for us. You see, that's the mindset of autonomy. You can benefit from and see the handiwork of God to deliver you. But all you see is just cause and effect and and maybe missed opportunities or potential. All you do is see that, and then you end up missing the glory, which is what Saul did. These people were saved because the Lord's anointed was faithful. But you know what? David too met an enemy, an enemy of whom Goliath was just a shadow. And this enemy that David met was such that even David himself fell before him. You know what that enemy is called? Sin. Sin is the Goliath that stands in your way laughing, mocking, taunting, threatening, and ultimately destroying you and everything you care about. And we need the faithfulness of the Lord's anointed to save us. The good news is, is that David, he wasn't the end of the line regarding the Lord's anointed. No, David had a son. And you read about David's son in Matthew 1.1. The genealogy of Jesus. The son of David. Jesus came to do in total what David was only able to do in part. And so the Goliath that stands before you and me has been conquered, has been killed, and has been ultimately humiliated. And you may be thinking, Ben, man, you're just doing one of those preacherisms. There's a big difference. between David went out there and laid it down, and he killed that guy. Jesus went out there and got himself killed. Vastly different. No, the power of sin is death. And so the nature of this enemy was such that Jesus had to descend into the grave to do battle. Jesus dying on the cross was his sinking the stone into its forehead. And Jesus' resurrection three days later was the beheading. The public declaration that death has been defeated. So, breathe the free air. Christ has killed Goliath. The son of David has triumphed over the seed of the serpent. He is victorious. You need him. And he has come up and met the challenge. Praise God. Let's pray.